All right, so 1 Corinthians 11 is where we are tonight. And uh, as you take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 11, kind of the, the question we landed on at the end of last time um, was what is God's highest aim in his dealings with mankind? What is, what is God, if you had to sum up what God is aiming for, working towards, shooting for, the highest goal? I mean, there's a lot of intermediate goals and whatever, but what's he really aiming to do in this world and in people on this earth? What would you say? Um, say for us to know him and to, to transform us from who we were to who he wants us to be. Yeah. For us to know him and for him to change us, for us to be his, to belong to him, to be adopted, accepted, uh, embraced, to live by faith in him, you know, for us to be everything we were created to be. And so for Paul, and especially Paul's part in the plan of God, Paul's part in the plan of God, what would you say mostly Paul's role, assignment in the cause of Christ was? Spread the word to the Gentiles. So, on the on the beginning end of that, from people who don't know God at all, to bringing them in, introducing them to Christ. That's a big part of you know the high aim of God, which is for everyone to know Him and, and to be living by faith in Him, to be uh, under His power and transformed by Him, touched by the hand of God. There's a lot of people out there that don't know Him. So we do on Friday in part. We're doing because there are people out there that don't know him, right? But that's not exclusive. It's not just let's find the lost and, and get them to Christ because there are, are many, many believers who through a lot of different circumstances are not living that reality out, right? For lots of reasons. They've been hurt in church. Um, they've been selfish. They've turned their own way. They've forgotten, whatever. They're, they're struggling with some sin. They... Um, Whatever. They, there's a lot of reasons why um, people who are genuine children of God need to be reconnected and, and, and growing in their faith. And so that's just right in the same vein, you know, um, that people, we would allow people and be used by God to, to funnel people and grow in Christ towards Him, fully connected to the power of God in our lives, the purpose of God in our lives. And what we wind up doing is we wind up, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We wind up living for things that are lesser glories, that are really, really small. They, they feel like they're comparable, but they're not. We, we live for things that feel like they really matter, but we even know in our own experience that they will only matter for a very short time. And next week, Whatever felt like a crisis today, I probably won't even remember. You know, for the most part, the things that stress us out day by day are things that if I look back on them in a week or a month, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. And that seemed like such a big thing. You know what I mean? Like that, it, how is it that we fall into that trap over and over again about what matters and this is so important? Oh, was that important? How did I think that was important? You know, I look, like when I was a youth pastor, I'd look at like the middle schoolers and I would think, you know, you guys think you know what matters in life, you know. You, you, they would come, to, like we would talk about, you know, how you interact with friends or standing up for Christ and they would say, Pastor Mark, you don't understand. 
And I'd be like, no, you don't understand. You know, I've been where you are, and I know how it feels, and I know it feels overwhelming. I know it feels like that's what life's all about. But you've, you've lost the bigger picture. You've lost what really matters in life, and you're going to have to trust me that someday, soon, you're going to look back on this. And, and it wasn't very long. It was a couple of years, and now they're ninth graders, or now they're tenth graders, and they're like, those stupid sixth graders, those stupid seventh graders, you know? Like, it wasn't a whole lot of time before they thought what those people thought, which is exactly what they were telling me about, was like, oh, that's so stupid. The drama, I can't deal with the drama. Like, you were Mr. Drama, you were Queen Drama, you know, like, that was you. I don't understand how you, you know, buy it again. Now, now what you're, you know, what's the big stress in your life? And, and we keep doing that, you know? Uh, you know, you, you go out and you establish your home, and it's like, now I know what stress is. Paying bills and being in a marriage and raising kids, and now I know what stress is, right? But, it, but the bigger picture, what's the bigger picture? It's so much bigger than that, isn't it? There's so much more to life than the stuff that we let eat us up um, and eat us alive. Uh, I, was, I was reading today, um, and it was interesting, um, just thinking about this. So I'm going to try to, just from memory here, just try to give you the sense of what hit me today. Um, it was an author, and he was talking about how we, how we settle for something so small. We act like it's comparable to what God has for us. And he said, think about a leaf. If you went out you know, into, a, into just a wooded area, and you picked a leaf, and you took a really good look at that leaf, you would notice so much intricacies, so much like the veins and the way that it's structured and the shape of the leaf. And I mean, it's a work of art. I mean, especially now as, the, as fall starts and you pick a leaf that's got variegated colors across it and it's like, it, can, it takes, takes your breath away how beautiful it is, how, how detailed it is, you know? Just one leaf. And then you think about every single leaf in this wooded area has that kind of detail in it, you know? And then every single leaf in this town has that kind of detail to it, right? And every single leaf in this country, in the forests of this country has that. Now, it's starting to get hard to kind of imagine how much detail there is just in leaves. You know what I mean? It's crazy. I mean, we're talking about all kinds of that throughout the world, we get focused in on one, one leaf. Like that's all there is. And God is so much bigger than that, so much greater than that. You know, the universe um, is unimaginably large. Unimaginably large. The, the, the distance from here to the nearest star is what they call a light year. Do you know how many times you'd have to go from here to London and back to make a light year? Like, 5,000 times. Like, it's like crazy, like, or I'm sorry, 50,000 times. It's like crazy the amount of, like, how many times that would be. And it's such a large distance to us. Nobody, wanna walk, nobody wants to, like, travel by, you know, rowboat from here to London. It's a crazy amount of distance, and it's, and it's nothing. It's the closest star to us. And so when we look at what life's about, when we look at God's cause and God's call in eternity and knowing Him as opposed to what we make life into. Paul says, this is what you do everything for. You do it for a bigger cause. Don't live for something that's a lesser glory. 
Live for something that matters. Live for what really matters in your life. And that can take all kinds of forms. It's not that you're not unconcerned or uninvolved with matters of this life. Let's say God made you somebody who was really, um, just really able to take properties that were, you know, really devalued and, and fix them up and turn them around and make great amounts of money. You know, let's say God made you with the ability to do that. It, 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 you're supposed to lay that aside because that doesn't matter. Maybe that's exactly what God called you to do for the kingdom of God. So that you could create money so that the, the kingdom of God's function could happen here on earth. But I'm not doing it so that I can like put notches on my belt or fill up my bank account. I'm doing it so that, the, you know what I mean? I'm doing it for the glory of God. I'm doing what God's made me to do for the cause of Christ. Maybe I'm a real good listener. I'm a real good empathy person. I can do that so that people will like me, or I can do that so people can know him. You know what I mean? Like, what am I doing it for? And so, um, you know, that idea is, goes back to, you know, we are called to make God great. We are not called to make ourselves great. We are called to make his name known. Not to stand up for our rights. Not to make sure that everybody knows that I am right and you are wrong. Um, not to take um, account of all that stuff. Because that's a lesser glory. That's very small. Paul's saying in this chapter, it's not really about whether you have the right to it or not, or whether you are right or not. And we'll see that as we go through today. It's really about how does this serve the kingdom of God? How does this serve the bigger cause? Will I turn my life towards that? And so he says to them, let's read chapter 11. Let's just read verse 1 and 2, and then we'll read the next chunk after we talk about them. It says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. All right, so Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He's talking about leadership. Follow me. Okay, when he said follow me, you're saying, I'm going to lead you. Follow me. And there is a lot we can learn about leadership, Christian leadership that is different from the leadership we see in this world. So let's brainstorm a little bit. What is different about leading as a believer, fundamentally different about leading as a believer than leading in a normal human way? If I'm leading as a Christian, leading in the ways of God, then I'm following something that's absolutely true because God's the one who said it. Okay? So yeah, so there's a there are some concepts of that out in the world, like don't you know, servant leadership, don't be high and mighty. Make sure that you're uh, on par with people. But Jesus didn't do that even. Right. You know, we, Jesus, we're going to see, we get to John 13, takes off his robe and puts on a towel. He didn't say, let's all wash each other's feet. He's, I'm going to wash your feet. You know what I mean? He takes on the role of a servant. Um, servant leadership, Jesus highlighted that and said, you've heard it said, or you know that this is the way it works in the world. The one who is the leader... The one who is in charge makes everybody serve him. But it will not be that way with you. The greatest of you will be the servant of all. That's a very different way of leading. I don't know that that leadership pervades our homes. I don't know that being children of God, that that leadership is real in the churches. You know what I mean? How much of normal human leadership has kind of wafted its way into our life? And I think that that big challenge as we get into this passage that's been used 
in real chauvinistic ways. I think it disconnects from the fundamental truth of what leadership is in Scripture. So servant leadership, that's a really, really big difference. What other ways are is, is Christian leadership absolutely genetically different than just normal human leadership? I recognize the power of my words, kind of. Yeah, I think there's a, if you're, if we've been given the truth, uh, it, it sets some soberness in you, some self-control in you. If the methodology for you sharing the gospel is with words, and your reliability, your integrity, then I can't just live however I want and say whatever I want and then say, okay, now I'm going to talk for God. You know what? If I'm nasty and cutting and sarcastic and dismissive and abusive and all that with my mouth, and now I'm going to go speak for God. I mean, James says it, right? James 3, out of the same fountain, you can't have bitter and sweet. You curse men and you praise God. What? What is this? So, yeah, there's some difference in the way that I, that I speak, for sure. So, the results of leading as a Christian rest in God's hands, not mine which enables me to be patient and not panic. It enables me to walk by faith in my daily leading. Even in a bigger picture, first of all, it's the answer to this is not me. The answer to this is Him. I'll be faithful in it, and then I'll see what God unfolds. That's a different thing. I don't have to fix it. It's not all on me. Bigger, it doesn't reflect on me. I'm not looking for my leadership to say how great of a person I am. I'm not looking for my position to make me matter. Right? That's different. Because you know that there are people in your workplace, in your experience, in your job life and whatever, that if they don't have the position, they're upset. Because they think it says something about them, right? That, that you know, the title. Jesus is not about titles. Or, I think to lead, you have to put your ego aside. Yeah. To think that's a big part of it. And that's, you know, where you're relying on the Lord, you know, what his, how's he going to lead you? Mm -hmm. you're, the, you're just an instrument, you know. When we put ourselves in yeah. leadership, and it's us, I focus, and, you know, he can't work through you. Yeah. I think the, the ego is the hope of many people in leadership. It's the reason they're ambitious. Let me prove my worth, right? A lot of you hear it a lot in athletics, like I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove myself, whatever. But that ego is not essentially the Christian mode for self-worth. My worth is because of what God did for me, what He says about me, because I belong to Him, not be, because He made me, not because I performed well enough, not because I rose to some level. And so, yeah, setting my ego aside as the measuring stick—that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. So, Paul's saying here, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm going to lead you. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about leadership. What he's saying is, follow me in the choices of liberty we just talked about, where I said, I can choose to do whatever I want, and nobody can stop me. I even have the biblical right to do whatever I want. But, I value this, this highest aim of God that people would come to know him, that they would be engaged with Him, that nothing would cause them to stumble or fall away from Him. And so, when I evaluate how to use my liberty, I go, what do I do 
to get out of the way? What do I do to point people to Christ the most fully, the, the, the strongest? What do I do so that I am building people in their faith and not tearing them down? And that's how I evaluate whether I eat meat or don't eat meat. So follow me as I do that. Do it like I'm doing it. So you see the connection there? That's kind of the follow me as I follow Christ kind of thing. So when you look at the call here is, is a specific call about like following somebody. Who do we follow in life? Who do we choose to follow in life? What kind of people do we follow? And I guess deeper than that, how do we choose who we will follow? Like what causes you to follow somebody? If you can look at yourself. Trust that. And that, you have a pretty good rationale there for that thing of trust, but I think it can get whimsical too. It's a little fickle trust. We trust people we don't even know. Did you know that? When people get on commercials and they say something to you and you naturally trust them and they know you naturally trust them because of the tone of their voice, because of the way their face looks, because of how they're positioned, how they're dressed, how they're lit. Like There are these emotional triggers in us that generate a response of like, I trust you. Maybe it's a grandfather figure or whatever, and they expect you to trust that person. Whatever it is, or identifiability or relatability, and you trust them. Yeah. Well, hopefully, but I unfortunately not so much. Yeah. But 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 we we maybe maybe we learn not to trust the complete unknown, but maybe we get more convinced about how much we do know about somebody. You know. I mean, I've had people betray me in my life that I thought I knew really well. Right. And boy, is that hard to deal with. Um, and so, how, how do I figure out who I'm going to trust and whatever? That's, that's where, where I start to follow people, is who I, who I trust, you know? Um, who I, when, when we got elections coming up next week, who are you going to vote for? How are, how are you deciding who you're going to vote for? If we're going with trust, because they're going to lead, we're following them, right? Okay, so they're leading. Do you, how, how many of those people that you're going to check off do you know? I mean, and, and in America, how many could you know, right? Like, you're not going to personally know the people on the ballot on a normal basis. That's just not in this big of a country with that kind of representative government. You know, I didn't get to sit down with the presidential candidates or our senator candidates or what. I don't. Most people don't know them like that. So how do I choose who I'm going to follow? What factors do I weigh into that? Obviously, got to be the spirit. You got to get on your hands and knees and say, I "That's what it should be." Surrender. That's what it should be. Mm -hmm. How do I? I guess what I'm asking is, how do I do that? What What's my What's real? You know, because I'm going to vote. Maybe I have prayed about it. Maybe I haven't prayed about it. So, I mean, they spend millions of dollars on commercials. You still don't know those people, but they give you tidbits of information. They drive you by fear. <coughs> Right? They drive you by innuendo. They drive you by seeming facts that are rock solid. Like, we're not in relationships with these people, but we're making a judgment on them. You know what I mean? By their works or their previous voting record. Mm -hmm. By what I, yeah, by what I understand to be their voting record. But I don't know their motivation behind that. You know? I, I, and many people don't. Many people don't even look at 
a voting record or, or, or a campaign platform. They vote, you know, if it's if it's blue, I tick that off. If it's red, I tick that off. Like that's how they vote. So and and I think if you look, this is a really big issue for churches because we are called to lead people to Christ, right? So leadership's a really big deal for us. We're also called to lead our young people towards Christ. How are they deciding who to follow? Do we understand what leadership is and how it works and how we're called to lead? Do we feel like I can only lead if I have authority? If I have position? If I have power? If I can make you do it? I would tell you that I grew up in um, Christian school and their mode of influence was largely authoritarian. We can make you do it, so that's what we're going to do. And out of my class... Uh, I had, we had 12 that wound up graduating with us. We had a bigger class, but we lost people by a lot of different things over the years. But we had 12 in my graduating class. Three of me and two others go here to church, so I know where three of us are. Um, but I would say most people in more than half of my senior class is not following or has not followed the Lord from Christian school. It wasn't for a lack of authority, but they weren't really led. They just, they walked out the door and, fine, I'm finally done with this place. I'm going to do what I want. As a matter of fact, they did what they wanted on the weekends. They were, it was party time on the weekends. And I heard about the parties. I wasn't invited to the parties. But I heard about the parties. And it was like, what's going wrong here? We're in Christian school. We've got Bible class every day. We've got chapel a couple times a week. Like, these are Christian teachers. What's, we're not leading the way the Bible tells us to lead. We're just, we're setting down the rules and somebody says, well, why that rule? And you go, well, it's because it's the way it has to be. Or you, you whip out a verse and you say, here's the verse and bam, and we're done. And there's not really effective leading going on. And I think it's a crisis because our world is good at pseudo-leading, leading in a way that appeals to flesh. So we have to get really good at leading people to Christ. We have to get really deep into this idea, this concept of leading. And so Paul says, imitate me. I want you to imitate me. Now think about that picture. I want you to imitate me. What I do, you do. So what kind of leadership are we talking about here? Example. example leadership, right? Now that's a lot harder. So think about God's design. God puts little kids in a home with mom and dad. How are the mom and dad going to teach that child? They're going to say things to them. You can't do this, you can't do that. But their biggest influence is going to be, what, they do. what do you do? So when you don't get your way and you blow up, your children go, so that's how you do it. That's what you do. Oh, okay, I get it. I understand. Right? Uh, you know, some homes have the silent treatment thing. You know, when, when you're really, really mad at somebody, you punish them by not talking to them for days. Okay? You've, you're teaching your kids by example. This is this makes it really living and breathing, doesn't it? That's the reality is we influence by our example of what we do. I had a conversation about a year ago with, the, with the, uh, a young man. 
um, who actually had worked as a youth pastor in his church and, and been in church all of his life. And he said something to me that really startled me. Um, he said, Pastor Mark, I think you're the first pastor I have met that I actually believe is going to heaven. And I was like, what? That's crazy. And it's not, it's not for lack of going to churches. He's been to a lot of churches. What does that say about us? What does that say to our world about us? What's our reputation in the world? Hypocrites, judgment. Like, where's the example? Where's the passion? Part of our example is, do we really believe this is true? And am I willing to live every day like this is the hope of my life? Whether anybody else does this or not, this is the way I'm going. And if anybody wants to know how I'm going, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I'm doing. Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. My example. Imitate me. And so we are to choose to follow those who are clearly following Christ. That's who we're supposed to follow. So what does that look like? It's probably not just as easy as saying, well, the guy who's on TV preaching the Bible, he must be following Christ. Right? The, the candidates who are for this party or that party, they must be godly. Right? It's probably not that easy. It's probably something else. If I'm going to choose somebody to allow them to lead me, I'm called to follow people who are clearly following Christ. I'm so, to imitate them, to model my life after them. And there are times, I'll, I'll tell you in my life, where I've allowed people to influence me for a season and then their influence waned or whatever. But the, the greatest impact are the people that, I'm like, they, I really believe they have a relationship with God that feeds their soul, that they live out of every day. I really, I just, it just feels like I see that all over them. Um, some of them are pastors and authors, and you can kind of read it or, or hear it and watch it come off of them. And they could be putting on a show or whatever. But if they are, it's a really good show. And, and what I'm getting out of it is this person really believes this. They're really living this. You know, it's, There's people in our church, many of you, have been examples and influences on me um, in my life. And, and you know, that's as we follow Christ, we're following people who are following Christ. That's what we're called to. That's the, the privilege we have, right? God could have, like tonight, God could write across the sky the plan of salvation in, in phosphorescent something, right? So that everybody could, on the world could look up and read the plan of salvation and like, oh, look, God did that. Why doesn't God do that? Ever wondered about that? Why doesn't God skip the middleman and go right to the unsaved and just tell them why doesn't he do that? I don't know that I have a great answer for that, but I do know this. He didn't do that. What he said is, you go. And so somehow, the most powerful, effective witness is you and I living like this is true. Like this matters, like it says it matters. It changes me, and I am an example of someone who follows Christ. If you really want to lead someone to Christ, if you really want to be engaged in what Paul talks about as the highest aim of God on this earth, you have to be pursuing knowing God and being changed by Him and His power flowing in your life every single day. That You look to Him to lead you. And others will follow. 
if you're doing that. That's, that's the opportunity that we have. And so we are called to follow those who are clearly following Christ, to follow them in the ways that they're following Christ. So what that kind of means to me is this. There are people in my life who have authority. And there are people in my life who are my leaders. Right? So when I'm growing up, I have my mom and dad. So I am to follow them in, in, in you know, submission. I follow their rules. But that's not really the following that he's talking about here. He's talking about letting them influence you. When you boil it all down, leadership is influence. Who is influencing you and who do you have influence over? Who would, who's watching you? Some of those people you don't know. I will tell you, as, as pastor here, I get the comment a lot of, I don't know that person over there, but I've been watching them. Somebody said it to me a couple weeks ago, um, that they're, they're sitting in church and they're watching someone else worship. And they said, that person doesn't even know my name. They probably don't have never seen me. They don't even know who I am or that I'm here, probably. But every week I watch them sing praise to God. And I know some of the circumstances in their life from some of the testimonies they've given. And that hits me every single week. Right? And so what I did is I was like, hey, come here. I want you to hear this, right? Because I want to make that connection. But the reality is people are watching you. They're watching you. I know there was uh, somebody who was on worship team, and every time they were on worship team, there was a certain group of kids that sat up front because there was some visual, there was some reason that they wanted to watch this person on worship team because that spoke to them. And every other week, they were all the way in the back, you know. But the weeks that person was on, they were right up front. Do you recognize the privilege God's given you in leadership and influence? It doesn't need a formal title. It can just be the passion that flows out of you from living for Christ. Will you live for Jesus or will you live some other way? And so leadership is influence. And so as I listen to my mom and dad and I listen to their rules and everything, I'm called to submit to that and obey that, but I'm called to follow them as they follow Christ. So that means, not in everything and anything. I'm not supposed to just be, whatever you say, I take in. I'm supposed to evaluate, are they following Christ? Let me see how they do it. And I'm going to do it like that. If, as I'm convinced that they're following Christ, I'm going to live like them. So you may have people in your life that you should be able to follow, but you're not. You know, it might be, it might be you know, political figures, local or, or national or whatever. It might be political stuff. You're supposed to be able to lead them, follow their lead, but you can't. Because they're not following Christ. Okay. It might be parents. It might be pastors. You know? If there's a time, and I'll tell you this straight out. If there's times where I am not representing Christ or not following Christ, don't follow me. You may have to do what I say, but don't follow me if I'm not following Christ. Do you know what I mean? You have to know. There, I've been caught in that before. Anybody, anybody, everybody, anybody ever been in a church where the pastor was in charge, but clearly not following Christ? Ever been there? It doesn't turn out well, does it? It's a train wreck. So when that happens, we're called to say, that person is not going to influence my walk because they're not following Christ. And it may be momentary or it may be a large pattern, but whatever it is, I'm, I'm responsible to say, no, I, I'm looking for examples and that's not the example. I'm not going to follow that. Right? Follow me as I follow Christ. So we're looking for someone who's living their faith. By the way, we're not looking for someone who knows a lot. I hear this a lot of times, and it's, it kind of gives me a chill down my spine. 
when we get to elections and we start who's supposed to be an elder and who's supposed to be a deacon and all this stuff. And what we're asking you to do is look at the example of somebody's life. That's when you look at the qualifications, that's what it says. Here's the example of their life. This is what they're living for. This is what they're about. These are the choices they've made. Their life example. Look at that and decide. But I hear this a lot, and it goes like this. Well, when we're in a Bible study, that person seems to know a lot. They seem like they really know the Word of God. Let's make them an elder. And, I, and I've heard it before with people that I know the circumstances of their life. I know the choices they're making. I know the, the deep addictions they have going on or whatever. And I hear somebody else say, well, they sound like they know a lot of the Bible. I think I'm going to nominate them for elder. And I, and I, because of confidentiality, I can't say, the last thing you should do is nominate them for elder. You should be on your knees praying for them. But notice this. Knowledge of the Word of God is not what you're called to follow. You're called to follow an example. An example. So, I, as a pastor, am useless to you if all I'm doing is sharing knowledge with you. If all I do is teach you, and there's no example of me living Christ, or trusting Christ, or following Christ with my life, get out of here. Go. Find somebody you can follow. Because that's the, that's the design of God here. For you to follow somebody who's following Christ. It's why we talk about their, their family. When you talk about an elder, you talk about their family, right? What you may, I may be able to hide it for the couple hours of a week we're here and, and look real spiritual. Guarantee you I can't hide it at home. So what do my kids look like? What does my relationship with my wife look like? Is, is Christ evident in that or not? And if not, go. Find somebody that Christ is evident in their home because that's what you're called to follow, see? And I'm not saying perfect, please, Right? I'm just saying, we're following someone who's clearly following Christ. And that's the call of God. And so, your leadership is based on influence. The person, we say leaders, so we think about people who are in positions of leadership. It's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying, follow me because I'm an apostle. Follow me because I was your pastor. He's saying, follow me because I follow Christ. Right? So it has nothing to do with knowledge, has nothing to do with authority, has nothing to do with privilege. I will tell you, your least amount of influence is your authority. If as a parent or as a boss, the way that you get things done is by using your authority, use the weakest possible leadership and it will have almost no effect at all. You may get compliance, but you haven't led anybody anywhere. Lesson learned from Christian school. Okay? Just, I'm just telling you. I may be able to make you do it, but as soon as I can't make you do it anymore, I haven't led you anywhere. I've controlled you, but I haven't led you. I haven't influenced you. We're called to influence. That's a pretty, pretty big opportunity. We're called to influence people. And so, who has God given you influence over? Some people you may never know. Certainly your kids, your spouse, your friends, you know, your neighbors. Where's the influence? And God says, Paul says, use that influence to point people to him. So Paul says, you sit down at a table and somebody puts meat in front of you. You've got a moment of influence. They're waiting to hear what you'll say. What will you do with that moment of attention? What will you do with it? Will you be like, now let me tell you how much I know about scripture. And the idol is nothing. And, or will you say, God is great. And his cause is what I'm living for. 
That's, that's what's coming out of this, you see. And so, who influences me? And who, I, who do I have influence over? I think there's a, there's a real opportunity there for you to dig down into what influences are going on in your life. And as a youth pastor, I always talked about music, movies, friends, big, big influences. I cannot even unwind for you how much influence music, movies, and friends have on our view of romance, marriage, sexuality today. Can't even unwind that because we just assume that if someone has musical ability, they must know what they're talking about. If it's identifiable, if I can relate to it, it must be true. Right? And so we follow their example in relationships to the place where what is normal today was considered immoral 40 years ago. You know? What we've settled for because we just, we're following, we're allowing them to influence us. We're, we're taking it in with no discernment whatsoever. No comparison to the Word of God whatsoever. It's just, that's what it must be. That's what it must be. And so, our, you know, what does a real, normal relationship look like? Well, I'll tell you right now, when, when, uh, my, when Kylie and Matt were dating, when my daughter was dating Matt, people at her college and his college were stunned to find out that they weren't having sex. Stunned. Why? That's normal. You're dating. You're in a committed relationship. Why wouldn't you be? I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. What if you were not compatible when you get married? Like somehow this is, you know, the secret of the universe is finding the exact right compatibility partner sexually. Like that's so hard, right? I mean, People are having affairs all over the place. I'm sure it's really difficult to get turned on by somebody, right? Isn't that terribly hard? Like, ridiculous. But that's the that's what's like settled in as wisdom nowadays. That's what kind of like that's our influence out there. So what's influencing you? Do you even recognize it? The, the shows that you watch, the books that you read, the people that you're around, the conversations that you have. What's influencing you? And are you looking at? Here's the truth. How does it measure up with that? You know, we're going to talk about the roles of, of man and wife as we go through this, this passage about um, the man is the head of the wife and Christ is the head of the church and all that. We're going to look at them. And there's going to be some of that that's like, I don't know if that flies today. Guess what? I don't really care if it flies in our culture as much as I care if it's true. Then we can look at not being necess unnecessarily offensive to our culture and that kind of stuff. But we've got to start with, I care what's true. And then we'll go from there. So what, what are we doing about that? Now, then the second verse, and the verse we read after that, kind of transitions. Because after he's talked about all that, now he talks about, I praise you for remembering me and everything. And now he's going to talk about, uh, not about what he had instructed them about outside of the church, but how they deal with each other inside of the church. And we don't exactly know what he's talking about here. I praise you for remembering me and everything and holding the teachings just as I passed to you. It's a weird verse in the middle of 1 Corinthians. I don't know if that hits you as weird, but I read that and I was like, what? Did he write to some other church in the middle of this? Like, everything in this book so far has been, you guys are so lost. You're so off track. I can't believe you think this. I can't believe you're doing that. Will you stop this and quit that? And, like, the whole thing. And then there's this verse, I praise you for remembering me and everything and holding to my teachings. What? What? what is, I don't understand. So we can't quite make 
total sense of it in the context. Um, is it sarcasm? We've seen Paul have biting sarcasm before. Um, the problem with it being some kind of a sarcastic remark is that when Paul uses sarcasm as a literary means, the payoff is right there. Like you can tell because he, like above, everything is permissible, but not everything's beneficial. He's kind of being like, I know what I said, everything's permissible. When we talked about what you can eat, you can eat anything. I know I said that. But, then he gives you the punch right away. Um, in Galatians, when he talks about, um, I wish that uh, those, those people who are troubling you, Galatians, um, would go all the way and emasculate themselves, castrate themselves. Um, he's talking about circumcision. They're making new believers who are Gentiles get circumcised in order to be legitimate Christians. He's like, I wish they would just go all the way. It's a sarcastic comment. Right? And, and it pays off right away. You get it exactly right there. There's, it's hard for this to be sarcasm because there's no point to it. It would just be like falsehood. So it seems to be in some way, best guess is, we know that they wrote him a letter. And it seems that in that letter they said to him, Hey, Paul, we've been listening and, and keeping to your teachings. And if you go back through the stuff we've, we've looked at, they've appealed to his teachings a number of times. They've twisted them a little bit. But they've appealed to them a number of different times, like the everything is permissible thing. Which you said, we're holding to your teachings, Paul. And so Paul's going, listen, I'm glad you're holding to my teachings. That's good. Now, since you are holding to my teachings, let me explain to you some, some of the ways you're, you need to apply this. And I think that's the best explanation um, for what he's saying there. And so remembering is a perfect tense verb. You continue to remember, and it must be what they claimed, to continue to, to remember. But... I do, again, want to emphasize this point. I think it's really informative. Paul does not debate that they have been holding to his teachings, that they have been holding on to the knowledge he gave them. He doesn't dispute that at all. But they're still way off track. So I hope this comes out as clearly as it is in my soul. The reality is that having your doctrine straight does not make your life straight. These guys are way off track on, what, what are we at, like 2,000 issues so far we've gotten through the first 11 chapters, 10 chapters? Like they're off all over the place, but they know what Paul taught. So it's where knowledge increases and knowledge increases, but it's just puffing you up because there's nothing real to it. There's no love to it. Um, there's, nothing, there's no passion in it for Christ. And so great that you got all your doctrine straight, but... Having your doctrine straight does not answer the pitfalls and the challenges of living for God. You can see that pretty clearly there, right? All right, so then here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this next passage here, and, and we're going to start discussing it a little bit, but uh, kind of leave it with you for the week as we get into what does this mean. All right, so like I said, he's talked with them about engaging in the festivals and the celebrations of the pagans in their city. He's talked with them about that. Now, 11... 12, 13, and 14, he's going to talk about what happens in the church. Uh, 12 to 14, he's going to talk about the gifts. Uh, 13, he's going to talk about love. 14, he's going to talk about um, speaking in tongues. Um, in 11, he's going to talk about communion. And here he's going to talk about covering of the head, <coughs> a woman wearing a head covering at church. All right? So here's what it says. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. 
Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. If it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, the woman is not independent of the man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of a woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. All right, now what I'll say to about this, because we won't get into, we can't discuss this whole thing, obviously, tonight. But what I will say about this is this. Um, this passage has been used to really discredit Paul as an apostle and Christianity as a way of life. It is graded to be archaic, chauvinistic, demeaning to women, subjugating of women. And I will tell you, rightfully so, for the way that this passage has been used. This passage in 1 Corinthians 14 that says, I don't allow women to speak in church. Let them be quiet. If they've got questions, let them ask their husbands at home. Those passages have been used to tell women to shut up, that they have no place of any influence in church, and they need to be quiet, and, and not they're less. They're a step down. They're second-class citizens. In the history of the church, they have been used like that, and to the shame of the cause of Christ. So we're going to look at that as we go in the next couple of weeks about what's he talking about here. Uh, what I want you to see at the very beginning, because Paul, Paul has a way of making this argument or making this um, appeal to them. He starts off by making what we call parallel comparison. Okay, the parallel comparison right away, what's, what are the things that are parallel in that first verse? Do you see it? Length of the hair? No, no. Christ okay. the head of the woman. we got three head-up statements, right? Mm -hmm. So the comparison is these three parallel statements are meant to inform one another. All right. So we've got the head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. All right. So we've got three instances together, linked together, and the point of that is to help me understand what he's teaching. Unfortunately, what's happened here, because it goes on to talk about a woman covering her head, and she's the glory of man or whatever, is we pulled the middle one out of it, and we make no comparison, and we get no instruction from it. We just go, the head of a woman is man. Man is over woman, that's the end of it. And I've actually seen and heard um, the fallout of that, where a woman in church was told she had to listen to any man in the church. You know, because the man is the head of the woman. And so if a man instructs you to sit down or a man instructs you to move, you you don't rebel against that. That's the authority given by God and stuff. And it's been twisted all around. And I think when you look at it as a parallel thing here, what you're looking at is 
you know, Christ is the head of man. So that relationship there, what does that mean? And God is the head of Christ. What's that mean? Now maybe I can get back to man is the head of woman. All right? And then, then that may inform, as well as some cultural things, will inform this discussion about the covering in the worship service of a woman's head. All right? So what is a head? What's he using that picture for? It isn't like many things in Scripture. If we, get, if we take something that's said beyond what is said, if we try to stretch it out, a lot of times it loses the truthfulness of it, right? He's using this picture of the head as the picture of a body with a head. He's going to come back to that picture in chapter 12 with the, the gifts. We're all parts of the body. And so the head. What does the head function as in the body? Because Christ is the head. We see that in Ephesians 4 as well. Christ is the head of our body. What does that mean? You know, what, what is he talking about there? Uh, and then, obviously, relating that to the other things that he makes the comparison between Christ, man, Christ, and God, and the woman and man. All right? So, like I said, we'll pick that up next time, kind of get into that discussion, see where that takes us next week.